everyone. My name is Barbara. I'm very grateful, Al-Anon. Um, and I uh, want to tell you three things that are important. My home group is the Macklin uh, Serenity Al-Anon Family Group in Powder Springs. We meet on Thursday night at 8 o'clock. Come see us. Uh, I uh, celebrate my anniversary of beginning my Al-Anon journey on March 19, 1984, and my sponsor is Ruth F. And for all those things, I'm very grateful, and they're all very important. Um, I, uh, I was thinking uh, on Thursday night when I heard Jewel speak that we had two judges speaking before me, and afterwards we had two people who'd been in front of a lot of judges, so <laughs> I wasn't exactly sure how I fit in. I know that uh, I grew up fear, very fearful of judgment with the big J, and uh, that I was very good at judging who needed me in their life and who I could fix. So I guess that's my, uh, my uh, central uh, turnstile role here in the, in the swap over. Um, I'm very grateful to the committee. Um, Mickey brought Dick and I uh, each a basket of goodies yesterday. Uh, I thank Barbara for asking me to speak and Cindy Hostin, and I, I feel like I have three hosts between Vicki and, and Cindy and Barbara. They've all been great. Um, I uh, thank Dick for getting here on time because if you walked in during my talk, I was going to embarrass you, so I'm glad you made it. And, uh, <laughs> um, I, um, I'm grateful to the Roundup Committee. I served on the Roundup Committee uh, as the Al-Anon Chairman for four years, and Dick was on the committee, I think, five years, and the Roundup's just been a very important part of my journey here, and uh, I'm very grateful to be here. And particularly, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a, in a minute, but I don't think that was a mistake that I was picked as the Al-Anon speaker uh, when it has just moved to Decatur because I'm from Decatur. I grew up here. Um, I um, want to start. Want to share with you. Um, before I get started, my 12 steps before Al-Anon. Number one, I discovered that I was powerful over others and that your lives were certainly unmanageable. <laughs> Two, I came to believe that I was the power that could restore you to sanity. Three, made a decision for you to, that you should turn your will and life over to the care of me. Four, made a searching and fear-filled inventory of everyone that I knew and found them lacking. <laughs> Five, admitted to God, myself, and anyone that would listen the exact nature of your wrongs. Six, became entirely ready to assist you in removing all your defects of character. Seven, humbly, ha, assisted you in removing your defects of character, except when to do so would cause me harm. Eight, made a list of all persons that had harmed me and vowed to get even with them all. Nine, waited and waited and waited, and waited for everyone to make direct amends to me. Ten, continue to take your inventory, and when you were wrong, promptly pointed it out. Eleven, sought through martyrdom, mothering, managing, and manipulating to improve your conscious contact with me. <laughs> Asking only that you read my mind and carry out my wishes. Twelve, Having had a complete physical, emotional, and spiritual breakdown as a result of this type of living, I tried to drag all those I love down with me and get sympathy and pity from all who would listen. <laughs> but the sad thing was that was pretty much what my life was like. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful to be here. I, you know, the theme is miracles happen and. I think over the last few years, I've begun, uh, Jack mentioned last night, the small and large miracles and God shots and whatever. I mean, maybe they're small or large, but I think there are things in our lives that happen every day. And over the last few years, I have become very conscious of being on a journey of every day, anticipating God's gift in that day for me. And there's always something there if I look for it even yesterday. Some of y'all know uh, that we got a call a little after 11 o'clock last night that our house had been burglarized and uh, ransacked, and uh, Dick left the roundup to go back home, and I think he was up at least till 5. The uh, detectives were there that long. 
Um, and I was uh, sitting there about 3 a.m. thinking about what was the gift in that, and we weren't home. You know, I, I, um, I had been uh, in an accident about two months ago, and uh, for several weeks couldn't move very well at all, and was home by myself most of two weeks. And I was not home by myself when this happened. So I have a lot to be grateful for. Um, those of you who've been to our house, Big Boy's still there, and so I'm very grateful about that. You know, there's, there's things to be grateful for in each thing. Um, but there's been a lot of things to, to be grateful for. I was uh, blessed to be at the International Convention in San Antonio. How many of you were there? It was fantastic. Um, and guess where it is in five years? It's here in Atlanta. <laughs> all right. So all of you here, we're going to need your volunteer services, I'm sure. Um, but it's going to be in Atlanta in 2015. So get ready. Fourth uh, of July weekend. Put it on your calendar now. Um, I uh, saw a rainbow last week. Um, was on the way to an appointment, and I saw a beautiful rainbow. You know, maybe they were always there, but I don't see them very, very often. Very often, but um, you know, those those gifts, those those beautiful uh, gifts of God that were given. Uh, laughter. You know, there was a bunch of us that went uh, on a barge trip down the uh, San Antonio uh, Riverwalk uh, late at night and uh, laughed and cut up as we were going along. Um, hugs from people I hadn't seen in a long time, both there and here. Um, I got an email from um, a physician that I helped um, in treatment 10 years ago, thanking me for what I had done um, for him. He was celebrating his 10th birthday and he was in Australia and he sent me an email on his Blackberry from Australia to thank me. I mean there's just there's gifts every day if I look for them. Today I had a lot of fun laughing with some Al-Anons at lunch and skipping my husband's talk. I'll have to make amends to him later. But uh, <laughs> but uh, there's so many there's so many gifts we're given in this program and they're little small miracles every day if, if we really look for it. No matter what's happening in my life, if I look for God there there's, he's always there. Um, I came from a, from a line of a long line of alcoholism. My mother was actually born in Decatur as well, in a house near here, um, to two alcoholic parents. Um, I grew up on Candler. Um, I went to church and to kindergarten at church a block away from here. Dick and I were also married there. And we also had my dad's funeral there several years ago. Um, my grandmother, my alcoholic grandmother, my key alcoholic in my life is buried three blocks away from here. So we're right in the, in the heart of my Al-Anon story. Um, I, uh, I came to Al-Anon for all the wrong reasons. Um, I'm glad I did, though. I was dating a recovering alcoholic who happens to be your speaker tonight. And uh, he told me he would never marry anybody unless they were in Al-Anon. And uh, so I married him to manipulate him into marrying me. Now, um, you know, it, my perspective is important to look at, too. He didn't tell me I had to go to Al-Anon. He just told me that he would marry somebody unless they were in Al-Anon. And he gave me a great gift. Uh, I uh, needed to be here. Almost everyone in my life was alcoholic. Uh, almost everybody I'd gone out with was alcoholic. It was everywhere. Uh, but I didn't really realize it for a while. Um, my uh, mother, uh, mother's mother and father were alcoholic, and my dad's father was alcoholic. My dad's father uh, died, uh, was put in the North, tried to commit suicide when my dad was seven years old. And he was put in the North Carolina State Mental Institution, and he died there five years later. And at 12 years old, my dad um, went into the um, funeral home, and he saw his dad's body, and both arms and both legs were broken. He could barely remember what his dad looked like. He was, uh, at, you know, from 7 to 12. And uh, he didn't understand it. He just tucked it away in the back of his mind. Uh, and I found out in later years that that used to be the treatment for alcoholism in the North Carolina Mental Institution. They tried to shock alcoholism out of someone by breaking a limb. And that's what happened to my grandfather as a result of this disease. Um, two generations ago. Um, my mother's mother and father were alcoholic. Um, my mother's father came from a long line of alcoholism. Um, he, um, 
my great-grandfather actually owned the property. I can, y'all will know what I'm talking about here. That is now uh, Peachtree and 14th Street and owned half of Sandy Springs. And so um, he uh, uh, offered all of his kids some money, said, make something of it. I'll give you some more, make nothing of it, and you get none of it. And my grandfather, being alcoholic, spent it all, squandered it all, was written out of the will, and actually was died, uh, died and was originally buried in a pauper's grave. Later they moved him. Uh, my mother's mother was the alcoholic I knew most growing up. And I spent every Saturday, every weekend with her pretty much. I had these two adult children of alcoholics that were my parents, and they didn't really know much about, um, about being parents. They hadn't been parented all that well themselves. So they took me to grandmother's every weekend that they could and, uh, I, and spent their weekend alone, and I spent my time with grandmother. And I don't think they really realized what my life like, was like at grandmother's. I don't think they didn't meant anything mean by it. But the first thing grandmother and I did every Saturday morning was go to the liquor store. We went to Happy Herman's Tower, and um, I'm trying to remember the name of the other one. But um, anyway, we went to three liquor stores, and uh, I, it was probably illegal then, too, but I had a lot of fond memories of liquor stores. They would take me behind the counter, and they would give me some candy or a toy, and they would play, help play with me while my grandmother did her shopping for the week. And she was probably a very good patron. Now... Uh, after the rounds of the liquor stores, uh, the trunk would be full of liquor, and if we were lucky, a piece of cheese and some bread from me. I think we actually got that at Happy Herman's. And uh, we would be off to have lunch at some fine ladies' place. If any of you are from here, uh, we'd eat at uh, Mary Max or we'd eat at uh, uh, one of the tea rooms around. It had to be a place that served martinis. Because she would have her three martini lunch, and I would have my three Shirley Temple lunch. And I became quite a connoisseur of Shirley Temples early on. And uh, then we would be off on some kind of uh, adventure. And life with grandmother was always uh, an adventure. We would go to try on ball gowns at Regenstein's or downtown Riches. And later on, I found out from some AA women here that they would give the ladies a glass of wine or two to drink while they were trying on their dresses. Uh, she would go get her hair fixed, and uh, she went to a place that would give her something to drink. We'd go to an art opening that had an open bar, or we would go, we'd go see a theater or a Broadway show that came into town, because, of course, they had a bar there, too. So we had to go somewhere where she could get a drink in the afternoon. Um, some of those were very good cultural events. One week in particular, I remember um, that I got there, and she had decided she wanted me to play the harp. And so we went around and we went harp shopping. I don't know if they served alcohol at musical <laughs> instrument stores, but who knows. And so we went around looking for harps. And uh, I always thought I was going to get these things, and I never did. It was kind of confusing. And then the next weekend I, had sh I showed up and she had changed her mind. She wanted me to play the accordion. Uh, she really wanted me to be able to be on Lawrence Welk. And so um, uh, if you don't know who Lawrence Welk was, then Google him. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, would settle back in, and uh, we'd get back to the house, and we would unpack the trunk of liquor, and we would settle down for my cheese toast and uh, her martinis, and we would settle down to watch Lawrence Welk. And somewhere in the middle of the show, Grandmother would fall asleep. Now, today I know she passed out, but um, I didn't know that then. I just knew once Grandmother was asleep, she was a sound sleeper. So many a Saturday night I was hungry or scared or tired or sick, uh, and I really didn't have anybody to take care of me. So I learned early on to take care of myself, um, you know, to fix my own food, to take care of my own whatever it was. Um, occasionally grandmother would wake back up and would take me out to bars with her, okay, and uh, we, most of these were honky-tonks. They were not the fine ladies' establishments. Although, Jewel reminded me, I have actually been to the San Susi, okay? Uh, I was under a bar table there once, sleeping. Anyway, um, but um, I, uh, we'd go out, and uh, I would try to sleep on some, you know, beer-soaked concrete or sawdust floor while Grandmother would party above me. Yet... When Dick asked me when we were dating if my life had been affected by alcoholism, I told him no. I didn't have a clue that was alcoholism. I didn't understand that at all. 
And Al-Anon's book, From Survival to Recovery, Growing Up in an Alcoholic Home, it says that adult children have an abnormal sense of reality. We think our life is like everyone else's. We have no idea that our life is any different than anybody else's. And so I had no idea that my life was different. Didn't even cross my mind. So I didn't bother to tell my mom and dad that I went to bars most every Saturday night or that grandmother passed out a lot or drank a lot or whatever. I you know, in later years, my dad and I sat and talked about it. And he really didn't know. He said occasionally he wondered, but honestly, he, he made amends to me. He didn't really want to know because he didn't want to lose his babysitter. But I can tell you, as soon as I could find excuses not to go to grandmother's, I did. You know, I found, and I grew up terrified of alcohol. Now, I would have told you in uh, days past that it was because I was Southern Baptist. You know, we were supposed to be terrified. We were supposed to be against alcohol, but it was because of all that early exposure to alcohol. Um, I went to high school, and I uh, uh, was had a desire to graduate and get a scholarship and be able to go off to college. And I wanted to have the most stuff after my name in the senior annual, and I accomplished that, you know, all those awards and things that I'd... But I was pretty much, I called myself socially anorexic. I really just didn't do much. I had three dates in all of high school, and those were things that I had to take a guy, and I invited them. I was a very late bloomer. And so... um, uh, I went off to college, and I went to a uh, small denominational college up in uh, Rome and uh, was a music major there. And I remember one particular Saturday night, uh, a gentleman asked me if I wanted to go out with him, and he asked me to go to church with him the next day. And there probably wasn't a better thing to ask me at the time. So we went off to church, and after church we stopped and by the side of the road and started talking, and he told me about his story. His uh, father was alcoholic, and he had caught his dad in the act of adultery with another woman. And uh, his mother had sent him off to this little college to hide him because he was going to have to testify against his father in court. And he started sobbing, and I was automatically in love. It was just that quick. (laughs) You know, here was someone who was kind and sensitive, and his life was just tragic, and I could certainly help him. And... um, so he was my first real project, and uh, um, and we went off, we dated off and on all through high out um, college. Now I recently, I, I tried to find him to make amends to him uh, not too long ago. Recently found him on, on Facebook. There was something significant about him. Every now and then my my friends would say, Barbara, you need to know something about Rick, and I'd say, well, what? And I said, no, no, that can't be possibly true, and. One uh, night on the dance floor, he admitted to me that he was gay. And, um, and so that should have been the end of the story, but it wasn't. All the lo- he needed was the love of a good woman, me, and I could fix that too. And so I took that on as a project for another couple years. Um, I finally gave up. Um, but not, he wasn't the last... Uh, uh, I don't know, last, uh, he wasn't the last guy that I, I was the last woman he went out with. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I was a music major. You know, we were creative. It was a Baptist college. They were all trying to stay in the closet, and I was the last woman a lot of them dated. And so... Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, you know, if they had a, a, had a program for it, I guess I would have found it by now. But anyway... Um, <laughs> I, in retrospect, I should have known, but I just didn't. And um, anyway, I somewhere in the middle of college, I decided that I really wanted to be of service. Uh, there was Joan of Arc and Barbara of the Baptistum, and so I went off to seminum, seminary. And um, I uh, went to seminary, and in seminary, I was popular. Okay, I was, I was. There were far more guys than girls there, and. I dated all the time, but most of them were, um, were basically most of them were um, an interview to be a preacher's wife, and I didn't really fit the mold. And so, you know, it was questions like, "Are you interested in the women's missionary union?" Well, it's okay. 
would you like to play piano in the church the rest of your life? No, I really want to do something more than that. So I didn't pass any of these interviews. The guys that I dated and hung out with were the recreation ministers and, you know, and the gay guys. And so uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I uh, was, uh, it was the first about the, towards the end of my first semester in seminary, and I was in church one particular Saturday, Sunday night, and a, a gentleman came in and asked if he could share. And he got up in front of the church, and he told his story, and he talked about the fact he needed to make amends for some things that he had done uh, in the church many years ago. And uh, to do that, he wanted to stay and be a volunteer for a year, and I had never heard anybody make amends to a Baptist church, actually before or since. And so um, that uh, gentleman is your speaker tonight. Now, um, it wasn't that simple. I remember his talk. I remember him sharing. I don't remember a lot else. Um, Dick uh, made the mistake of telling me at one point that he had he'd been sober a little over a year, year and a half or so, and his sponsor had told him that he could go out if he could find anybody to go out with him. And so he was praying one particular Sunday morning. He'd seen me up in the choir and thought this is ethereal light behind my head or something. I don't know. And uh, he prayed this prayer, God, she'd do. And uh, so he asked me out that day, and uh, I told him no. And Dick and I will have been married 26 years in October, and I do not remember him asking me out, but I'm sure he did. Uh, I told him no because I was going out with somebody else in the church who ended up to be gay. And uh, so anyway, I told him no, but I needed to grow up a little bit and Dick needed, you know, or, or, and loosen up a little bit. And uh, Dick needed to uh, get a little bit more sober. And so uh, we ran back into each other here in Atlanta in Lenox Mall uh, about four and a half years later. And so um, I was walking around and Dick came up to me and said, I know I know you from somewhere, and I said, I didn't think anybody ever actually used that line. And um, so that was, our, that was the start of it. And he eventually remembered that he had met me at this church, and since he knew the name of the church, I figured he wasn't a serial killer. And so I gave him my phone number, really, at, by that time to get rid of him. And uh, he called me several times before I agreed to go out with him. But I did go out with him, and on our first date, we went to a five-star restaurant. We went to Anthony's, if anybody knows Anthony's, and then we went to see a Broadway show. And on the second date, we went to an equally fine restaurant, and we went out to see a movie. And on the third date, we went to Chastain Park, under the stars. Dick had a catered dinner brought in, and we saw Johnny Mathis. Okay. Now, that particular night, he told me about this prayer that had hung out in the universe all this time and that he thought he knew that we were destined to be together. This was the third day. And uh, I told him I wasn't even sure I was attracted to him. And he told me that he wasn't sure I knew what to do with a heterosexual. <laughs> Which was pretty much true. <laughs> So uh, we didn't date for a little while. <laughs> and I went off on a little uh, adventure. I checked out to see if all the gay guys were still gay and all the alcoholics were still alcoholic. And, and uh, so um, I called him on Valentine's Day in 1984, and I told him that um, maybe I'd made a mistake. And I made him some chocolates, okay? So, you know, way too, you know, I've, I've advised that to girls before, but uh, if it was somebody that was really good prospect. But anyway, um, uh, I made him some chocolates and we got together. And um, now I, and we went out pretty constantly, you know, Dick, but Dick was a, a straight guy who'd never been married in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, he had to decide whether he wanted to be married. And he, uh, and I, I, uh, I had to decide too, but it, during that period of time, Dick told me that, uh, that he hadn't, wouldn't marry anybody unless they were in Al-Anon, and I started going to Al-Anon. And I call it my Cliff Notes period, Cliff Notes version of the program. I was trying to do a graduate accelerated course, and uh, I'd go to meetings, and I would try to learn all the buzzwords, and I was doing some private study. I was going through the steps on my own, 
you know, that ism, I sponsor myself, is not really the way to do it. And so uh, I uh, was, you know, trying to get through. I was trying to convince him I was really working a program so he would marry me. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't working so good for me, but I was fooling him. So uh, we were, uh, he suggested I needed to get a sponsor. He actually suggested who I should ask. And uh, there was no way I was going to let him pick my sponsor. He'd already push me into Al-Anon. So I went to my next meeting, and uh, I, the woman who led the discussion, yeah, she seemed like she made pretty good sense, and so I asked her to be my sponsor. Now, by then, in my I Sponsor Myself program, I had, got, I had already written my fourth step, and, uh, and I told this woman about it, and she said, well, why don't you let me read it tonight, and I'll call you tomorrow and tell you what I think about it. And uh, this is not the way to do a fourth and fifth step for anybody who's, like, looking for the miracle way to do it. Um, she called me later that night, and she said, run. And I said, what? And she said, run. Quit dating this guy. You don't have to be an Al-Anon. Your life will be a living hell. Don't marry him. Don't think about it. Just run. And uh, she said, in fact, you know, it's so awful. My husband's in the other room having sex with another woman right now. And I thought, oh, I don't think I picked the right sponsor. Um, so I saw her one more time, and that was to get my uh, fifth step back, fourth step back from her. And she went into what I call my black hole. My bra- I have a lot of bl- brownouts. Alcoholics have blackouts. I have brownouts. She ceased to exist. Now, you could be here, okay? I mean, it's possible that this woman could be here today. And if you want to tell me, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine, too. I don't remember her name. I don't remember what she looked like. The memory bank erased her. She ceased to exist. And that's kind of what my mind did with people I resented or that, I, that had caused me some kind of pain. She just d- doesn't exist anymore. I do remember what meeting I met her at, and it doesn't exist anymore. So other than that, I don't really... No, so I found another sponsor, and I, um, uh, not the one yet that he recommended. Eventually, I did ask her to be my sponsor, but that's another story. And um, <clears throat> so Dick and I decided to get married, and we got married at the church half a block away from here. Um, and the church was divided into three into three thirds. Well, that makes sense, into thirds. And <laughs> Anyway, uh, the 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 uh, robbery thing in the middle of the night, you know, where I haven't had all that much uh, sleep. There, um, one-third was members of AA, one-third was Baptist, and the other third were active alcoholics. And uh, (laughs) we we had alcohol at the reception for the active alcoholics in our family, and I think that the Baptists were more offended than the members of AA. Uh, <laughs> but it was a wonderful, uh, it was a wonderful ceremony. Um, and I think that I pretty much thought that life, that marriage was like a fairy tale, and I discovered very quickly that it wasn't. You know, I'm not sure which one of us was in more denial when we got married. I thought Dick was sober because he was six and a half years uh, in the program, and he thought I was well because I didn't have any alcoholism in my family. Huh? And, uh, I think he was in much more denial. I was a mess. You know, when I walked into this program, I was physically sick. I had um, intestinal problems. I had a stomach ulcer. I had an active eating disorder. I was chronically depressed. I was suicidal half the time. Uh, But I always had a smile on my face because I was here to be your best friend, to help you to do whatever you needed, and I didn't let any of that through. It just... You know, it just stayed inside. I was kind of like an empty shell. When I think about it, I was kind of like a mirror. Whatever you wanted to see from me is what would bounce back to you. And alcoholism, for those of us who have grown up in in active alcoholism, is kind of like an acid that eats us from the inside out. And you don't always see what we're suffering from. You know, we just get sicker and sicker and sicker, and nobody really knows until it gets really bad. So uh, Dick and I, you know, were going to meetings. I loved AA. I, I would much rather. I've, there was a couple times I've decided to, I wanted to try to qualify real quick, you know, without, y- y'all seemed to laugh more and have more fun. And um, I got drunk twice, you know, uh, after we got married, and he didn't do anything about it. He didn't even say anything. And so 
Uh, he didn't suggest to go to AA, so I figured I was going to have to go through a lot more pain if that was going to work. So, um, But I still went to meetings. I was still doing what I needed to do. I got involved in service because Dick became the DCM for his district, and he was headed down to Macon, and I didn't want him to have any you know, cute alcoholic women picking him up, so... I asked my sponsor, who's the GR of our group? And she said, why, you are if you want to be, honey. And that's how I got involved in service. So if you want to be delegate, you know, it doesn't really matter how you end up starting. So I uh, went down to Macon with him to keep an eye out on him. Um, And in 1985, Dick and I went to the International Convention in Montreal. And we got on the plane, and somebody made an announcement on the plane. It was an L-1011. They don't really fly them anymore. I think they used too much uh, fuel. And there must have been 100 people on our plane that were in the program. They made an announcement, are there any friends of Bill W. on the plane? And Dick was, you know, he used to table hop when he was drinking. He was, you know, seat hopping, jumping around, talking to everybody. He was so excited. And I have never felt more out of place. I, d- I didn't feel like I fit in. You know, some people hit the wall, hit the door of Al-Anon, and they feel like they're home. And, and I didn't feel at home in Al-Anon either. I've always felt like a wallflower, and I felt like I still felt like a wallflower. So on the, you know, just on the outside looking in, and I, it, and I got more and more depressed. You know, we got there, we, we signed in, people were hugging him on the street. I was still kind of at that point that I wasn't really sure I wanted you to hug me, you know, when I came to meetings. Um, I had actually gotten to the point that uh, the meeting I was going to most regularly, somebody blocked the door once and said, no, you're not going to leave until I give you a hug. <laughs> so I had gotten to the point I wasn't leaving during the prayer, but I did that. I, was, I rarely went to the same meeting twice because I didn't really want you to get to know me. I went to meetings all over town. Uh, so here I was on the plane and then at the International, and I was hopeless. Um, I, uh, that night... I went into the bathroom, and and I came out with a razor in my hand, and I told Dick I thought I was just going to kill myself. And I did get the reaction I thought I was going to get. He started laughing at me. Now, before you think he's cruel, it was one of those pink, big, daisy razors, and I had been using it for about two weeks to shave my legs with. And so I wasn't going to do a lot of damage, but um, I was that hopeless, you know. The other thing that happened is because Dick had gone to so many conventions and he'd hung out with so many people in family recovery, he'd heard everything Al-Anon's try to do, you know, to manipulate an alcoholic. So nothing I tried worked. Nothing. You know, it was like here I was trying to threaten to commit suicide, and it didn't even work. And so um, I'm the only one that's ever been physical with the other. I hit him in the gut, and then I just crumbled, and I started crying. And he said, honey, if there's ever a time for you to join Al-Anon for yourself before you really do kill yourself, it might be here. We're at the International Convention, okay? There's 24-hour meetings here. So the next morning, I got dressed, and I went to Al-Anon's, the opening session of Al-Anon's first international convention that was held in conjunction with AA's International, and the speaker was Lois Wilson. So... I still get goosebumps when I think about it. When I got ready to hear the message of Al-Anon for myself, it was Lois that brought it to me. And she started talking. She started talking about this family disease and how, it, it, and how this program was a spiritual program. There's not a spiritual side of the program. It was a spiritual program. It was a transforming way of life. We never had to be the same again. We never had to be alone again. And she also talked a lot about our big three A's. I remember she used to always say that, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Alateen, and how this family program, we would all, if we stayed together, we would always be together as a family. And honestly, Dick and I have a lot of sadness about that over the last few years because that's beginning to change. We're not as much of a family program, the three A's together, as we used to be. I'm so grateful to see so many of you here um, at 1.30 in the afternoon after you've probably had too much carbs for lunch. By the way, if you need to stand up, feel free. But um, I, um, I heard that. I heard her. And by the time I had left Montreal, I had finally taken the first step for myself. 
It took me a year and a half to do it, uh, already in service. Um, the second and third step were a whole lot harder for me than I thought. See, I'd gone to seminary, so I thought I knew everything to do about God, and so I thought I could kind of skip over those steps, and um, it didn't work that way for me. Um, I see the steps as kind of holding hands, and sometimes there's something in the step before it or the step after it that we have to do before we can really work that step. And um, what I saw was that I needed to, um, I, I needed to do an inventory uh, a true inventory on my relationship with God in order to move on. And so I looked at everything I never thought that God was, everything that I thought that, um, everything that happened to me in churches, everything that uh, I remembered hearing about God, all the stuff I remembered uh, from childhood, and um, I put it all together, and I did, um, I did a complete inventory on that with my sponsor. And the year I graduated from seminary was the year that the Baptist Church passed a resolution that Eve was the first to sin and therefore women shouldn't lead over men and women in ministry would be strongly discouraged. So I'd spent seven years and um, I heard God didn't want me. And uh, that's the way it, it entered into my soul and I didn't realize it for a long time. I uh, had interview after interview after interview and um, I, you know, I won't go into all of them, but you know, everything from what will you dress, you know, what will you wear if you're in the pulpit to, and I was going to be the minister of music and youth, not the pastor, but they were worried about what I was going to dress like standing at the podium. They were worried about when I would get pregnant after getting married. I wasn't even dating, um, all kinds of things. And the one that I'll tell you about is I, I had an interview at a church in Alabama. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. And I, you know, gathered my change together to get down there, which you couldn't do today. But I uh, got down to the interview, and I walked into a room, and there was about 50 chairs in a circle and one in the middle. And they ushered me in and put me in the chair in the middle. And the man that was seated across from me said, we just wanted to see what someone like you, a woman, who would have the audacity to apply for this job would look like. That's all. And... I, um, I didn't know what to say. Now, I've thought of a lot of things since then. But um, uh, the words that came out of my mouth were, I hope you're going to pay for my expenses. And there was a man on this side of the circle who threw some money out on the floor. And I picked the money up, and I walked out of the circle, and that became God to me. And I didn't know it. didn't know it for a long time. You know, I was sitting in the rooms of AA and Al-Anon, and I heard, I heard the message of the God of my understanding in your stories, but I didn't believe that power that God loved me because of all those things that had happened to me. Uh, my sponsor told me to start keeping a God journal, to write down anything, and I would write any of y'all that are struggling, I recommend this, but to start writing down anything that was beyond my human understanding that happened in my life. If I got a hug in a meeting when I needed it, if I got money in the mail to pay a bill when I didn't think I was going to get it, if I heard one of your stories, if I heard a miracle in somebody else's life, um, I started looking for those God moments in my life and other people's, and I started writing them down. And uh, I, uh, I remember the first, the first story I remember hearing that was definitely a God moment was actually Dick's first sponsor, Jack Sullivan, talked about living in a cardboard box, you know, and a debt collector coming and knocking on his box and saying, I'm going to make your life miserable if you don't pay this bill. And, um, <laughs> and here he was, you know, sober, and he was restored to his family, and he was helping other people in the program and, and professionally as well. And I thought, well, God's got to be in, a lot in the world to help this guy get out of that box. And uh, so I started looking at all those things, and... And slowly I, I, I began to believe again that there was a God in my understanding, but I still didn't believe that that, that power cared about me. And uh, Dick and I began to have some serious financial trouble, and I think we had those troubles because I needed to learn to trust God. And we got to a place where we didn't have money for groceries, and I had just told my story at the area assembly and made people laugh and didn't tell people anybody about what my life was like at home you know, that we were struggling that much. And I got down on my knees, and I prayed, uh, God, I don't know if you're hearing me, but I need help. 
And two hours later, there was a knock on my front door, and there was a friend of mine standing there with eight bags of groceries. Now, I don't know if your God delivers groceries, but mine does. And so that was the moment. That was what it took for me to take the second and third step, okay? Eight bags of groceries at my door. Um, and then and things slowly started to get better. Now, during that time, you know, I started looking at my own character defects. I had a lot of fault-centered pride, you know, because that was so, I was so afraid to tell people what had really happened in my life. I had this old... Uh, it was actually a drunk car of a, f- a friend of a couple of y'all's in here. It was a, a green bomb that had two names. Somebody loves somebody rusted into the trunk, and, uh, and the headliner was falling down, and the backlights were broken out, and we had some reflective tape over those. And you know, it, this was not a pretty car. And uh, I was so ashamed of the car. Instead of seeing it as a gift, somebody gave me a car. Instead of seeing it as a gift. I saw it more like a curse. And so I would drive, and I'd, I'd park it about two blocks from the meeting, and I'd walk the rest of the way because you couldn't see somebody who was in service driving this car. And so, but I'll tell you, as soon as I started pulling the car into the parking lot, as, as soon as I saw that character defect and was willing to pull the car in the parking lot, things started to get better. Um, I was the ultimate people pleaser. You know, uh, Dick Kids, that um, our, our um, family motto must have been hide out or, uh, you know, make other people happy or whatever. But Dick, uh, he made the mistake one day, you know, we were going somewhere, and he said, and I, the, my standard answer to any question was if, if where we wanted to go to eat was, I don't care whatever you want to do. And he said, no, where do you want to go? Okay, and I had no idea. So I said, we, we can go there. I know you like that. Or we could do this. I know you like that. He said, no, where do you want to go? And so I picked the one I thought he liked the best. <laughs> but <clears throat> in retrospect, I'm not sure he's really glad he taught me this lesson. But um, <laughs> anyway, slowly I began to realize I really had an opinion. You know, I had lived my whole life not, you know, deferring to somebody else. And slowly I started to realize I had an opinion and state what it was. And then, so I was so proud that I could state what I wanted, I automatically assumed I'd always get my way. And then I had to learn about compromise. And what I've learned in this program is that my character defects are kind of like on a pendulum. And, uh, you know, the ultimate people-pleasing is the ultimate arrogant entitlement, you know, and somewhere in the middle is what is normal. And so I found that a lot in my life. Um, I was an extremely fearful person. My father was an extremely fearful person. Um, and he, um, he taught me uh, fear from an early age. And when I started doing the inventory, you know, he taught me that if you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you have to look in the toilet because there might be an animal there. Okay, well, he grew up when I, where's, what's his reality? You know, what's my perspective? What's his perspective? He lived in a farm with an outhouse, not in Atlanta with public, you know, water. And, but I still had that fear. And so I don't know if I thought Willard was going to, climb out of the toilet, but I still looked every day. And so anyway, I was very scared of mice. And when Dick got, and I got, first got married, we had a mouse in the house and I, you know, screamed and made him get rid of it. And I didn't deal with the fear. And I worked with him for the first few years we were married. And uh, our office building was infested with mice. And I was the office manager. And what did I do? I went home to work until the poison worked on all of them. And I'd, I'd have my employees call. They'd be screaming as a mouse would be running up the court. And I'd just think, God, I'm glad I'm not there. And, you know, uh, I, was, uh, I didn't deal with the fear. And we moved out to the country. Uh, we called it our fishing camp house. Um, and uh, we, uh, it was on 14 acres. And they cleared a field nearby, but I didn't know that. And I saw a rat, and I screamed, bloody murder. And Dick said, no, I'm sure it was just a big mouse. And I said, no, this was a rat. And so the next morning, uh, there was a little note slid underneath the door from Dick that said, don't come out. I have Mickey cornered. And uh, he came out. Some of y'all know him pretty well. And, you know, he came out. This was during the period where Dick was growing his hair out. I think he, he wanted to be Steven Seagal, but... When I told him he looked more like Danny DeVito in Twins, he cut his hair. But uh, his hair was uh, kind of sticking out like Bozo the Clown. And uh, he had his army boots on and his, his uh, robe and a crowbar in this hand and his 9 millimeter in the other. 
and he had been up all night doing war with the rats. And uh, um, my sponsor actually gave me permission to move out for a couple days, um, more because of Willard and uh, than the rats themselves. No, um, but I have never been afraid of a mouse again. You know, sometimes we don't let go of our fears; they get bigger. Um, one by one, I was willing to look at where my disease had taken me, what my character defects were, and what I needed to do to deal with them. Um, I had some amends to make, you know, um, and I'll talk about a couple of them in the workshop because I, cause I, I, w- I want to talk about that as well uh, when Dick and I do the workshop. But uh, there was definitely some, some amends I needed to make. I uh, wanted to make amends to, the, to my alcoholic grandmother, and so I wrote a letter and all the fun memories I remembered about her and all the sadness of realizing that her problem was alcoholism and the fact that she hadn't found recovery for it, and my regrets, because I pretty much tried not to spend any time with her when she probably really needed me. And I went to her grave, which is a Decatur Cemetery, and took a friend with me and read the letter there and tore it in little pieces and mixed it with some potting soil and planted a camellia bush there and uh, watered it with my tears and some extra water I brought with me. And I try to go visit her grave when the camellias bloom every year to remember that when I'm able to let something go, something beautiful can bloom in its place. Um, I had a roommate in graduate school um, that I owed amends to. Uh, We had had a fight about a guy, and uh, I had moved out while she was at work one day. And uh, I didn't, it was like a couple days before the rent was due, and I didn't leave her any money. I didn't leave her affording a dress. I just left. And so I started looking for her, and she wasn't in the alumni directory, and her parents' number wasn't good anymore, and I thought I was off the hook. And they say that, you know, when you're ready to make amends, you know, the person shows up. And so I was on vacation in a town I'd never been to before, and uh, she was on vacation in that same place. And I started walking down a mall, and uh, I walked up to her, and I said, I can't believe you're here. I've been looking for you. You know, I told her about being an Al-Anon and the amends I felt like I owed her. I looked in my wallet. I had about the amount of money I thought that I owed her. I gave it to her. I gave her a business card. She never said a word. She just stared at me like this. And uh, for a minute, I wondered if it was her, but it was. And uh, so I just let it go. And about a year later, she called me and she said, Barbara, you'll never know what a gift you gave me that day. I had written so many people out of my life. I had so much resentment in my life. I hadn't spoken to my mother in 10 years, and we're now we have now have a relationship again. And I want to thank you for for opening that up for me. So sometimes our amends go forward, and we don't even know it. Um, and she's uh, she and I are on each other's Christmas card list again. Um, with my parents, uh, making amends to them meant to include them in my life again. You know, there were many years where I just, you know, my parents would want to know where I was and I would make a point and not want to tell them. And so I just started calling them every day. When I left work, let them know what was going on. Uh, I got tired from time to time of my mom, mom telling me what she was fixing for dinner that night. But, you know, she, her life was very regulated. And she loved hearing from me every day. And it didn't take a lot. When we went out of town, we'd call and tell her where we were going. When we got to the hotel, we'd call and give her a phone number. This is before cell phones. And uh, we just included them in our life. And when my mother got ready to celebrate 50 years in a service organization she'd been a part of that I never really understood, it was kind of like the Yaya Sisterhood, Um, but she never really understood Al-Anon either, she asked me to give her a pen. And so I was able to do that. And Dick and I were able to give my parents a 50th anniversary party. And um, we were able to take them on some trips. And we were able to do some things for them. And when they started getting to the point that they were pretty much trapped in their house, and they had stairs in every direction and they couldn't get out and couldn't get in, um, we had a lot of, it took us a lot to convince them they needed to move out. But we moved them into an assisted living place that was near us. And we thought they'd be there for a long time. You know, but it didn't exactly work out that way. We moved them in, and we got them all new furniture and new copies of all the favorite pictures and put them all over the walls. And, you know, they had this beautiful place to live in and um, moved them in in August. And um, in January um, the 22nd of the following year, uh, this was 2005, I got a call that my dad had been found non-responsive, and they'd rushed him to the hospital, and he hadn't made it. And... The miracle, there were so many miracles in that, but the first one was that Dick was supposed to be speaking in Colorado that weekend, 
And he had gotten out to the tarmac and the Atlanta Hartsville Airport and sat there for three hours. And they finally brought the plane back in. They said they weren't going to be able to take off. And so Dick had already missed his ability to speak on Friday night. And so he came back in and uh, was there when I got this call. So he was with me. And we had uh, a beautiful service at the church around the corner. And uh, uh, some of you were there. Uh, we had my, uh, my mother and I had a wonderful day that day. I, I helped get her ready, and we fixed her hair and put makeup on her, and it was like we laughed and giggled, and uh, she got to see all of her friends, and Dick and I left, and we went to the Hilton Head Roundup. And on Monday, we were relaxing over some shrimp, and we got a call that my mom had been found non-responsive and that it didn't look like she was going to make it, and we needed to get back in a hurry if we were going to see her. So we jumped in a car. I started driving back. Dick was mad. I was in shock. Uh, Dick got pulled over by the police, I think because God wanted him to have somebody else to be mad at the whole way home instead of God. And um, we started driving home. We stopped at a Wendy's. And uh, I walked in the Wendy's, and I went to the bathroom, and uh, playing on the music in the Wendy's was How Great Thou Art. And I had never heard Christian music in a Wendy's since her... I had to ask somebody if it was really playing. I wanted to be sure, and it was. And uh, we had just sung that at my dad's funeral. And this, you know, wash over me came, this is going to be okay. We got back, and um, we were holding, Dick and I were holding my mom's hands and had our other hand on top of her head, and we were saying the Lord's Prayer, and right in the middle of Thou Will Be Done, she passed. And I'd heard about what a gift it was to be with somebody when they passed away, and I didn't know that I ever wanted to have that gift, but I was grateful to be able to be there for my mom. She brought me into the world, and I helped her leave. Ten days after my dad died. And it was a shock. It was, it was, it was hard to lose somebody that quick. And, and um, you know, uh, Dick was wonderful. We hadn't gotten any insurance money from the first funeral, and so program people pitched in. She died on Groundhog's Day, and I'd seen that silly Bill Murray movie just once too many times, and I could not do the same funeral again, you know, ten days later. So we had a friend in the program who was a minister who said, come to my church. We had somebody in the program who sang, said, I'll sing. We had two or three people that said, we'll bring a covered dish reception. And uh, we pretty much had a free funeral and uh, for my mom. And it was a beautiful service. And, um, you know, the hardest thing for me was just the shock of it all. Uh, in the middle of that year, there's so many things that happened that I finally figured out what one day at a time was all about. You know, I really thought I understood it, but I could not look at everything that happened in this year in my own human eyes and handle it. It was too much stuff. I'm not through yet. And, uh, but when I looked at it through God's eyes, every day there was a gift. One, you know, one day it was how great thou art in a Wendy's. You know, we also had this, this um, blue heron that started showing up at the lake where we live around that time. And the days that I was having the hardest time was when the blue heron would be there. Um, my, um, our Norwegian elk hound, Booger Bear, had been there when I got down on my knees and prayed that prayer that day about the groceries. He, got, he used to pray with me. He'd get down next to me and pray. And he'd been, if you ever looked at God, dog in the mirror, it's God. And so Booker Bear taught me everything about unconditional love. And he passed away just a few months before my mom and dad. And he taught Dick and I how to grieve, you know. And I, we didn't realize what a gift it was going to be. So we'd lost Booger Bear. We'd lost uh, my mom and dad. Um, we took off for Toronto for the international convention. And uh, international conventions have always been significant in my life. And we were beginning to heal. And uh, Dick got back, and uh, uh, he knew he was going to have to have a test, and he went in, and he found out he had esophageal cancer. Now, if you know anything about esophageal cancer, it doesn't have very good outcome rates. And he did not tell me for a while. He, you know, said, Barbara's already lost her parents and her dog, who's basically her child, and uh, just, you know, I, he, he couldn't believe God would take him, too, in the same year. And uh, so he didn't tell many people because we don't gossip in AA and Al-Anon. And uh, it, would have been, it wouldn't have possibly have gotten back to me. And so uh, <laughs> anyway, um, 
But he was dealing with it on his own. I was trying to help. He did tell me he had some precancerous tissue on his esophagus and he might have to have surgery. And he gave me this letter to give to my HR director because he was under my insurance. And it said carcinoma in there. And I thought, a doctor's not going to lie. But I didn't want to know. So I just tried to pretend like I didn't see that word. And um, five days before we headed off to Rochester, New York, which is where we ended up having the surgery, and he'll tell you part of the story too, so I'm not going to tell you all of it, um, I, uh, I discovered that he really had cancer. And so if you are from a born and bred Georgia girl, you do not want to face your husband dying in Yankee land. It just wasn't something I wanted to do. And <laughs> So here we were going to Rochester, New York. So because we have been in service and because we speak, we started putting the word out. And when we got to Rochester, we had this new home group standing there waiting for us at the hotel. You know, we had a AA, new AA and Al-Anon sponsor. We had a couple who took me under their wing, who made sure I ate, who made sure it did my laundry for me. You know, if you don't believe that you found a new home in this program and this is a worldwide fellowship, then, you know, you don't see it until something like this happens. We had family there. You know, Dick was dealing with cancer and he had his surgery and they told him he'd probably be in intensive care several days. And the next morning after the surgery, um, we went in and he was arguing about the, with the nurse about closing the uh, curtain to the window so he could see the TV. And she said, we never have anybody talk to us in ICU. So <laughs> his, uh, his surgery was 15 hours. And the only day meeting, only day Al-Anon meeting in Rochester, New York, is on the day, happened to be the day of the week as his surgery, and it was right across the street from the hospital. And so I was even able to go to an Al-Anon meeting in the middle of that 15-hour surgery, which I definitely needed. Um, there was just so many little miracles along the way. Dick started uh, recovering, and the first day the physical therapist showed up. She said, I just want you to get up and move to the end of the bed and back. And he got up and lapped the nurse's station four times. And, uh, you know, he had this determination. And they said, now, where did this come from? He said, if I survive alcoholism in Vietnam, cancer's not going to get me, you know. And we got hundreds of calls, and every day, two or three times, my cell phone and his would fill up. And back at the hotel room, Clancy would call me every day. And I, it, that, I mean, called me, you know. And um, it was just this amazing outpouring of love and cards. And we had probably 100 visitors. And the staff there in Rochester just said, y'all are from Georgia. Who are these people? <laughs> and Dick, who could barely talk, said, I'm just drunk. <laughs> so he got better enough to leave town. The worst part was the two weeks in between the time he got out of the hospital and the doctor giving us okay to go because he was coming, you know, trying to recover. He was freezing all the time and I was in early menopause. It was not pretty. And, uh, but we were headed towards home and we were going to spend the night in Louisville, Kentucky and as we were pulling into the city, we got a phone call that his mom had been found non-responsive and rushed to the hospital and his mom died. And Dick lost his ability to work for a couple years. And, um, you know, the, the Christmas that year, it was almost like the end of It's a Wonderful Life. Money started showing up in the mail. Uh, you know, we had no ability to make it through it um, in our human understanding, but some of you in this room helped us. And uh, one day at a time, we made it through that year. In God's world, and in, in man's world, I don't know, you know, how I would have made it through all those things at once. In God's world, it was the most miraculous spiritual year I've ever had. There were so many miracles there. God, you know, Dick's obviously here, you know, and uh, less than 1% of the people that have esophageal cancer live. So he's definitely, that's why he's speaking. Miracles happen. He's one. And um, there continue to be miracles in my life. You know, over the last uh, few years since then, you know, I uh, have... I'll tell you that I, I did find a career. I was uh, doing Al-Anon service, and I was at um, a uh, I was at CCAD doing Al-Anon service, running the Al-Anon booth. And somebody came up to me and said, "You have a seminary degree, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "Would you like to be chaplain at a women's halfway house?" And start I started working in addiction treatment, and I've been doing that for 23 years now. And I was at one place for 15 years and got laid off. Um, 
in 2008 uh, because God wanted to move me to a new place. I'm now traveling and representing the New Jersey Treatment Center that's been there for 53 years, and I'm, I'm very honored to be doing that, you know. I, but it's amazing. I am I'm making cold calls, which I never thought I could do. I mean, if you're, if you're not quite through with your, your character, character defects, uh, sometimes God moves you to where you need to be. I was terrified to make a call to, to, to convince somebody I could come see them. And I didn't realize I was still afraid of people, you know, until. But it's miraculous what's happened in the middle of all that. I feel confident in doing that. And I speak to uh, at treatment centers all over the country about the place I work at. So, you know, all those things come together to show us where we're supposed to be. Um, and miracles continue to happen. Um, I want to end by reading a little thing from Alanon's book, Having Had a Spiritual Awakening. At a meeting, I heard a loving story that has stuck with me. There once was a little child who woke up in the middle of the night, frightened and alone. He ran to his parents' bed and crept closely between them. His father said, you know, when you woke up scared, God was with you. The boy said, I know, but I needed someone with skin. And that's, um, that's the, uh, the God of my understanding. That's what you taught me through this program. The God in you touched the God in me and helped me find my way home to a fellowship and miracles beyond understanding. I thank you.